Monterey, it was a watershed moment where everything pivoted in three days. All of what pop music was on Friday was changed by Sunday night. All the groups that came in on top, Association, Johnny Rivers, the Mamas and Papas, they were history on Monday. And everybody that came in unknown from London and San Francisco, they were the new stars, the ones the record companies wanted. That was what people wanted to hear. It was in this huge swivel spot. The entire sound of popular music had changed in just that weekend. Nothing was ever the same since. Welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Brandy Howell. It almost seems mythical now, what we hear about the summer of 1967, of the music festival that took over the sleepy fairgrounds of Monterey, California, for those three days in June. The idea seems so commonplace now, with the Coachellas and outside lands of our day, but this was the first of its kind. An idea hatched up by John Phillips of the Mamas and Papas and their producer Lou Adler. Little did they know that their experiment would prove to be an unforgettable experience, ushering in a new era of rock and roll for generations to come. My friend's father was in the crowd that weekend, and at the young age of 17, he said it changed his life. A strong statement, of course, but no doubt it's true. To have witnessed firsthand these moments that are now permanently etched in the lexicon of rock and roll, the memories and music still hold their strength and power for him and the others that were there. And so as we marked upon the 50th anniversary of Monterey Pop Festival, I began to talk to some of the others that were also there in the crowd, to listen to their stories and share their experiences of those three days in Monterey. And now on the Echo Chamber, we go back to Monterey Pop Festival. Here are their stories. I have memories of the festival. I was just turned 17 at the time. One thing I wonder about is how many veterans of that day, if their memories are crystal clear, were getting on in age, and how much of that has been influenced by the movie that came out, Monterey Pop. It's just a fun idea for me. It's like, are people remembering what really happened, or are they remembering? But I, the neurotic high school student, kept notes. My name is Doris Murray McKay. We're in the San Francisco Public Library branch in the Haight, and I've been working here since 2003, when I was five years old. My mother woke me up, grabbed me out of bed, and put me in front of the black and white television set and said, watch this. This is important. It was Elvis on the Steve Allen show. I was doomed. <laughs> it's almost hardwired DNA now. Everything that was rock and roll. It was 1967. I was living in San Diego, California. I was 16 years old when the Monterey Pop Festival was announced. My best friend in high school and myself got tickets. I'm Jonathan King. I had just turned 17 when I went to the Monterey Pop Festival. I was a Los Angeles high school student just finishing the 11th grade. A rock and roll nut but a loner, socially maladroit. I spent endless hours in my room worshiping rock and roll records. I was probably the only kid in my entire high school who had a subscription to Billboard so I could follow disc jockeys and charts and record releases. I really obsessed about it. So when the festival was announced, I said, I've got to go to this thing. There were a couple of small problems. I had never been out of Los Angeles. I was 17 years old and had never been beyond the city limits. Extremely shy. 
had no adult skills at all. So the notion of somehow transporting myself 300 miles to Northern California, this mystical Oz, almost was beyond me, but I was bound and determined. When we got the word that this big rock festival was coming to the fairgrounds, that was really exciting news. We were all going to be there. We were going to meet all the people who were where it's at. It was going to be totally out of sight, like a bee-in. I'm Rosalie Howarth, and I live in Walnut Creek for 23 years, but I grew up in Monterey. I work for KFOG Radio doing a show on Sundays called Acoustic Sunrise. When the time arrived, my girlfriend and I certainly couldn't afford the $3 tickets. So we snuck into the fairgrounds and wandered around and found a place we could see the stage if we climbed at the back of one of the horse corrals. We told my parents that we were going to Monterey. My father said, oh, sure, we'll drive you up. They'd been our chauffeurs to shows before, to the Beatles, to the Yardbirds in Los Angeles. So they drove four teenage girls up to Monterey. We left very early in the morning on Thursday. My mother, way less determined, she first said, no, are you insane? Eventually, I wore her down for the first time in my life by saying, I'm going anyway. She made me promise to get a hotel room, and she made me promise to call every night. So a couple days before the festival, started looking for hotel rooms. And what do you know? There was nothing in Monterey at all. I had no mental geography of the area, so I pulled out a little map of California and noticed that Monterey was only a half an inch from someplace called Santa Cruz. So I called, and there was a hotel room. So my mom said, okay, fine. It was interesting, four teenagers and two adults in a car. This was 67, so we were driving the 1966 Caprice. We went up the coast, 12 hours, 15 hours straight. My father was a long-distance truck driver, so he doesn't believe in overnights on trips. Drove up, spent Thursday night in the hotel. Got on the Greyhound bus on Friday morning, the first day of the festival, and took a long ride out of Los Angeles for the first time in my life to mysterious places like Paso Robles and, you know, Salinas. This is, my eyes were open wide. Got to Santa Cruz to claim my hotel room about 6 p.m., rushed to check in and then get back to the Greyhound, take a bus to Monterey and see the Friday night show. But there were no buses. I was desolate. I was destroyed. The animals were going to play that night, and I'd waited three years to see the animals. They were one of my favorite bands. I wept copious tears. Finally, I went out to the freeway to try to hitch to Monterey. 17 years old, little Jew boy from L.A. This was all new and exciting. Could not get a ride for two hours. It was cold and miserable, so I trudged back to Santa Cruz in my hotel room and wept more copious tears and slept. I've got to protect myself, uh... The city just totally freaked out. There was an inundation of these long-haired, red-eyed young people with beards dragging their possessions along behind them. It must have looked like the zombie apocalypse to them. Once you leave again, you may not re-enter Got dropped off to go to the concert Friday afternoon. We said, we got to get there early. The first night, we were way, way, way in the back. It was a large amount of people. Chairs were set up in the middle, and then there were the box seats. We were almost the very, very last row at the back. The Friday night show went on into the dark. Eric Burden and the Animals, Johnny Rivers, Beverly, Lou Walls, the Poppers, and the Association. It was just exciting. And, of course, Simon and Garfunkel closed out the night. 
It was a highlight of the show to hear them live, to hear that whole 15,000 people all humming along, all the way to the back row. And it was very moving, and it was a fitting ending. The interesting part is what happened after we went Friday night. We got back to the hotel, and I said, Hey, Dad, Mom, a lot of people are just staying at the fairgrounds. And they said, Yeah, see you Monday morning. So four teenagers got up, went off to the show, and never came back until Monday afternoon. And they had no problem with that, none. I had parents who were of the school, as many were in those days, of benign neglect, be home in time for dinner. That was the deal. So I told them where I was going and that I would be staying out late. I don't remember how I got there. Everybody hitchhiked in those days. And I may have hitchhiked, though you know I didn't tell my parents about it. Next day, got up, finally caught a bus, made it to Monterey, walked miles to the fairgrounds, finally get to the festival, sit down for the Saturday afternoon show, which is sort of a blues and rock show. Basically, the San Francisco bands. It was daylight show. Our tickets are a whole lot better. We're stage right about a third of the way back. And as luck would have it, the corral we had climbed up to the back roof of was right at the tip of one of the horseshoe arms. We were maybe 60 feet away from the stage. We were all feeling really high because we'd just been turned loose from the hotel and we knew we were going to stay at the fairgrounds and it was just really exciting. My best memory of that day, I was looking across the floor and I saw this gorgeous, gorgeous guy. He had hair down to the middle of his back, beautiful, and he was just staring at the stage, entranced by what was going on. I'm just like, I am in love. My Lord, look at that. And the next time I saw him, he was on stage playing lead guitar for Quicksilver Messenger Service, and it was John Cipollina. For me, what encompasses Monterey is seeing John across the field, so much enjoying someone else playing. And then, as I said, the next time I saw him, he was on stage playing, and I was a diehard Cipollina fan for ever. It was a band with a few guys and this one woman singer. She's wearing a little knit dress and with little tiny pumps, little, little tiny pumps. It was gold knit jersey tunic top that flared at the bottom and then the same kind of gold knit jersey pants bell bottoms with real big legs at the bottom. And as she swirled and twirled, it just swirled around in this golden gauzy haze of energy. And then she would lean over forward and stomp her foot and everything would shake and shimmer. Big Brother came out and just ripped the place apart. Everyone's just sitting there, kind of politely. And Janice opened her mouth. Ball and chain. Ball and chain was so intense, people were just literally screaming out loud. I was just transfixed. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. The whole place, the entire place just went, oh. What? I think Janice knew that this was that big moment. She blew everybody away. 
It was absolutely riveting, especially seeing these strong women up there just belting it out and fronting big boy rock bands. I mean, there were a lot of female vocalists, women like Aretha and Tina Turner, but to see these women leading these loud rock bands, equally in stature with men, fronting the band, not just being girl backup singers, was really a mind blower, literally, because that meant anything was possible for a young woman who loved music. They did this fantastic set, just blew my mind. So much so that after they finished their set, I had my best seats of the festival at that point. They're about 10 rows behind the VIP section. And I'm looking and, oh my God, there's the lead singer just standing behind the VIP section watching the band swigging a bottle of whiskey. I got up and I went up to her, which for me to do came from somewhere really deep that I overcame my shyness. And I just looked at her and I said, you were, you were amazing. <laughs> you know. And Janis Joplin looked at me and said, thanks, man. And I went back to my seat and, you know, melted. That's a vivid, vivid memory. Saturday night, Jefferson Airplane, Laura Nero, Paul Butterfield, Moby Grape, The Birds, Hugh Masekela and The Big Black, and then Otis Redding closed with Booker T and the MGs and the Marquis. Otis Redding had this high, high energy R&B set that was centered on his voice, and it was the backup. It was universal. You can't resist the beat. You can't resist the vocal stylings. It was Booker T and the MGs behind him, so it was tight as it could be. Horns, rhythm. Really a spectacular musical experience. There's no hold barred, no, no going, oh, I'm viewing an African-American performing, you know? I mean, it wasn't even that. It was getting us into black rhythm and blues music that we were not that aware of. It just rocked. Thank you so much. I'd like to uh, introduce a perfect example of uh, what the world's coming to. The Jefferson Airplane, Yorma and Jack. Grace, she was already a queen rock and roll. Because the airplane were on at night, there was a backdrop so we could do these light shows. And they were just, they were acid trips. They were colors and shapes, would be like amoebas that would grow and get smaller and change color and move. It gave a whole nother dimension. You're listening to the music, you're listening to the lyrics, you're looking at what the people are wearing on stage, and then the backdrop is pulling you in as a participant to the stage performance because you're part of this amoeba color organism that everyone is part of at that moment. I never went back to the hotel that whole weekend. Saturday night, the show ended about one. People started streaming out of the venue, either to go back to their tents or to the, wherever they were living, and I was without a place to go. There was no transport. There was no nothing, and I was kind of concerned about where I was going to sleep. It turned out that there was a home ec building on the festival grounds that had been taken over by the press, such as it was, the hippie press, who were all camped out in there. And I tried to get in, 
And they said, well, who are you affiliated with? And I said, oh, God. I showed them my high school newspaper press card. You know, I was an associate editor on the Colonial Gazette. And they kind of looked at each other and they went like, whatever. Yeah, go on in. So suddenly I was in a warm gym of some sort, big room. I found a blank space on the floor between two parties of hippies. Took off my jacket and used it as a pillow and lay down on the floor. These nice people took pity on me and they tossed me a blanket. And so I slept on the floor. I very much remember waking up the next morning as people were getting breakfast and someone was playing KYA and it was a Jefferson Airplane playing Somebody to Love, which I had just seen the night before. I really felt I've arrived. I am not a hippie, but I am hippie adjacent, you know? <laughs> this, is, this is really cool what's happening right now. After staying there Saturday night and not sleeping really, crashing in a head shop booth, we went in to something we had no idea what it was going to be. Ravi Shankar sitar music. Revolver had been out for almost a year, so we kind of all knew that the sitar was an instrument and that he was a big avatar, but I don't think anybody owned Ravi Shankar records at that point. After the festival, I bought every one I could find. I was absolutely hypnotized. I'm a completist. There was no way I would go up there and miss something. I had no idea. You know, I'd heard what a sitar was, but this whole new meditative approach, something that took you inside, interior, ethereal, this calm interlude in a weekend of rhythm and blues and Janis Joplin screaming her head off and taking the crowd down. The sounds coming out of that were something that we'd never heard before. This was low, contemplated meditation music. It really was an oasis in that weekend. This also was showing us the breadth of music out there that we had not been introduced to. You see that wonderful interplay between Allah Rakha and the tabla and Rabbi Shankar, and you see the looks of wonder on the audience's face and then the standing ovation at the end. And that was really how it mounted. It just got more and more through the performances. People understood what artistry we were seeing, what incredible transmission of music in this unfamiliar genre, and it reached everybody. One of the really coolest things about Monterey was as a West Coast teenager, I was introduced to so many bands and so many types of music that I had not heard before. Hugh Masekela, Otis Redding, I'd never gone to a, a Motown or Stax show, Ravi Shankar. These are three highlights that I would never have ever seen in Southern California. It was eye-opening. Then we get to The Who, Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey, absolute forces of nature. John Entwistle's the only thing that held that band down to a level that they could stay on stage. Keith Moon, the craziest, most wonderful drummer in the world. Crazy. And Roger Daltrey was always out front playing to the women in the crowd, always looking gorgeous, always swinging and moving. 
Townsend was playing a guitar like no one had ever heard anybody play a guitar, windmilling, moving, and Entwistle just standing there, holding them down on stage so they didn't just all erupt and leave, in a, in a, which I have heard they had done at other shows. People were polite and they appreciated it, but it wasn't until my generation and what happened afterwards that people were just stunned. I mean, a bomb went off in a drum kit and this guy had created feedback no one had ever heard and smashed his guitar and all this stuff. And the place was just quiet for a second until that final devolution, that final extreme act, which came as a surprise to most people. It also sounded amazing. It was turned up to 11 and the feedback and the crunching of the guitar, it's chaos in your ears. And then the pyrotechnics and then the bomb that goes off, Townsend's gone, his guitar is broken and suddenly boom, his drum kit explodes and people are running around like crazy. A big impression. This was one of their biggest first appearances in the United States and they were hungry. They were hungry. They wanted to make their mark. And it was an amazing show. Unfortunately, they were upstaged, as we all know. This unknown black American with an afro walked out on stage. I do remember, before going to the festival, an older guy, one of the hippies, said, oh my God, you got to catch this one act. You got to catch Jimi Hendrix. And I said, okay, Jim Hendrix, I'll remember. He said, no, 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 Jimmy. And it's Jimmy with an I, J-I-M-I. You have to catch him. And it's Hendrix with an X. Promise me you'll see him. And that's probably the reason I made sure that we found a way in that night. Ecstatic and electric and overwhelmingly loud and sexual and revolutionary or from the time he walked out on stage. Incredibly flashy dresser. He's playing a guitar with a vest behind his back. So he's got layer upon layer upon layer on clothes and then he's doing acrobats on stage. You just sat there with your jaw open the whole time. Girls went crazy all around the stadium and the guys were just looking at him. A lot of guitar wannabe players going, eh, maybe I'll go into carpentry. I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe auto mechanics is appealing. This was like the Janus moment. Everyone in the crowd was just dumbfounded. This was his first appearance in the United States. And he'd taken England and Europe by storm. No one in the States knew him. He came up with things that no one had ever thought of doing on the guitar. And once he did it, everyone just stood there and said, you can do that? And so then Jimmy realized that Pete, being Pete, destroys his guitar. Jimmy made sure that there was no question whether or not he destroyed his guitar. He burned his guitar. It's toward the end of his set. He's blowing the audience away, but they're still kind of polite, not quiet, but not, you know, like rushing the stage. He's playing Wild Thing, and it was cacophonous, and he's pounding through the power chords, and then there's a period of feedback. But then he put his guitar down on the stage, and we thought, that's odd. And everyone's watching him. He had something in his hand, like he was pissing on the guitar, but it wasn't. It was a bottle of lighter fluid. And he starts spraying the lighter fluid across. And then he struck a match, and it went up in flames, lying there on the stage. There was a burning guitar with howling feedback. He sort of prayed to it a little bit. You can see his fingers wiggling over the fire. My reaction was, well, that's a, that's a topper. 
<laughs> I wonder how Pete feels about that. Everyone in the crowd is just, go, what, huh, what, what? And then it's just silence with them going, oh my God, blew the who off the stage, put him at the forefront of the people who were well known. But beyond that, it was like, you know, I gave you everything. And here's the last little drop. And here it is. And then the mamas and papas came on. <laughs> I don't know how they had the guts to even walk onto that stage. They closed it sure off with kind of, Let's well, go. you know, you just saw the most amazing thing in the world. And we can't really reference it, so we're going to do a couple of hits and close this out, and then you can all trip for the rest of the night because we can't compete. After Jimmy's performance, I scurried backwards down off the back of the arena and got the heck out of there. It was just too frightening and intense, and that place could have gone up like a cinder, I'll tell you. It was the perfect kind of music to just chill out to. Kind of like the way Greensleeves is played at the end of Fillmore shows. You all know it's over. We're giving you something really mellow and nice to walk out to that you can hum with. And then you go do whatever you're going to do. And that night was a party. Thousands of people. There was a midway. There were parties in some of the other outbuildings. People camping out from a commune in Santa Cruz. There were all kinds of side parties going on. We pretty much didn't get any sleep that night. There was no sleeping in the booth. It was just party to party to music to whatever. And then the sun came up. It was about 9 o'clock in the morning, and we decided we needed to get back to the hotel, which was pretty much within walking distance. So we all walked back to the hotel, and um, my parents asked how it was. And we said, wonderful, lovely. And <laughs> they checked out of the hotel. We took showers and got back in the car and drove back to San Diego. I had to scurry home. I was already very, very late. And there's, in fact, in those days a firm curfew of 10 p.m. for anybody under 16. So I, I'd already broken curfew. Memory of Monterey for me is inextricably intertwined with my own personal story. I can't imagine that was true for everyone. For a lot of people, it was probably a fun weekend in the middle of a fun summer. For me, it came at a point in my life where I was just starting to develop. It took everything that I spent my time thinking about, which was rock and roll, and set it in front of me as a banquet. I got to have adventures, leave home, and it opened up really a whole new life for me of getting out and experiencing stuff, which had just not been a part of my life. I was a shy, bashful kid, sat at home with his radio a lot. Anyone can pontificate about how it affected the culture and the musical industry and all that. For me, it was the absolute linchpin of a new era in my life. I'll always remember it that way. So that was, that was Monterey. And now for a bit more history behind the scenes of the festival, we go back to Joel Selvin, San Francisco-based music critic and author of Monterey Pop Festival. Monterey Pop Festival was dreamed up by a guy named Alan Pariser, who was one of the first connoisseur pot dealers in Hollywood. He was the heir to the sweetheart straw fortune. He was well known to the hip rock community for his high-grade cannabis. He dreamed it up and went to a guy named Ben Shapiro, who was an old-time Hollywood music business manager, had a few clients like Ravi Shankar. 
And they booked the dates with the festival, which was on the site of Monterey County Fairgrounds, where the Monterey Jazz Festival had been held every year since 1958. They went to John Phillips of the Mamas and Papas, who were the top rock group in Los Angeles at the time, to see if he wanted to go. And he liked the idea so much that he and his manager, Lou Adler, kind of hijacked it from Pariser and Shapiro. And when they took it over, they turned it into this nonprofit, created a board of governors that included the members of the Beatles and the Beach Boys and Simon and Garfunkel, and created a, a whole sense of Monterey as being this impending event. In order for Monterey to represent the new rock scene in June of 1967 fully and completely, not only did they need the support of the London rock scene, which they were getting through their contacts with the Stones and the Beatles and others, but they had to have the San Francisco bands. Now, at that point, most of the San Francisco bands had not really played outside of San Francisco. The Airplane, their second album had come out in February of 1967, and immediately White Rabbit was a hit record. In June of 67, as the Pop Fellows were starting to take place, the second single, Somebody to Love, just exploded. They were the most anticipated act of the weekend. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. Never even knew that. There was this Fillmore and Avalon scene that was just in San Francisco. That's the only place you could see it or hear it. But you'd heard about it. So Lou Adler and Phillips came up to San Francisco because they knew they needed the cooperation. And the San Franciscans were hippies, and they were very suspicious of the Los Angeles music business. They went to Ralph Gleason, who was the respected columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle. Gleason sort of listened to them and said, you know, this is a pretty good idea. You ought to do it. And with Gleason's blessing, they were able to go to the other rock band managers around San Francisco and acquire pretty much the full participation of the San Francisco scene. Coming out of Los Angeles, and of course the Mamas and Papas, they brought along Scott McKenzie, Philip's old friend. He'd fashioned this song that was kind of being a commercial for the Monterey Pop Festival. This gentleman who, who's going to sing a song for you that's a big hit all, all over the country. John wrote it and produced it, but that's not the only reason it's a hit. This guy has the most beautiful voice. I just love his voice. I'm going to sit down and get myself into a mood. If you're going to San Francisco, Scott McKenzie. San Francisco, be sure and wear some flowers in your hair. Now, I can't tell you how disgusting that song was found in the San Francisco rock scene at the time. It was just a tacky little top 40 pop song, the exact opposite of everything the San Francisco bands represented. In some ways, it just sort of co-opted the spirit and turned it into a little ditty and made it all right for 14-year-old kids all across the country to know it was, you know, just had to wear some flowers in your hair. Now, like I said, the San Francisco groups were sort of antagonistic about this whole thing and dubious. And in fact, the Grateful Dead had made the producers give them some dough to run an alternative festival site at the football field of the nearby college. And they'd brought in a flatbed truck and they got the festival to give them some gear. And they, they ran jam sessions. Some of the guys from the festival showed up there in the middle of the night. I think Eric Burden did some 3 a.m. jam and stuff like that. And at the end of the festival, Adler and his crew looked around. They couldn't find the equipment. They loaned the dead. So they communicate what happened to the gear, and yeah, we've got it. And, you know, so the dead send a telegram to Adler. It says, you know, they're going to have the gear. They're going to use it on a show in the park on June 21st, and you just come up here and you can pick it up. Be sure and wear some flowers in your hair. Special thanks in this episode to Doris Marie McKay, Jonathan King, Rosalie Howarth, and Joel Selvin. The music heard in this episode comes from D.A. Penny Baker's brilliant documentary, Monterey Pop Festival, one of the best concert films ever made. Watch it when you get a chance. 
And thanks to you for listening to this first episode of The Echo Chamber. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. This is a new show and any help to build its audience is deeply appreciated. And stay tuned for the next episode, which takes a closer look at Dave Brubeck and the Jazz Ambassador Program of the Cold War. That and more coming soon on The Echo Chamber. 